Brought to you by the WZIP sports team, this is Sports Power Talk Overtime. Featuring in-depth interviews. I didn't really plan to ask this, but since you brought it up, what's it like kind of having like your own meme? Like how does that make you feel? <laughs> Exclusive original content. He crosses paths with another best in the world. Oh, that gets you excited, don't it? Oh, that gets me excited. And of course, the hottest takes. My dad used to have this saying, if you don't like the series, you don't like football. Well, like... I say I'm a pretty big football fan, and I despise the <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> so get ready, because it's time for SPT Overtime. What is going on, Sports Power Talk Overtime fans? We are back with another episode. My name is Logan Congrove, and I am your host this time around. And joining me today is the head coach of one of the most storied high school soccer programs in the area, and it's Javier Iriart. Javier, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Thanks, Logan. <laughs> Absolutely. Javier, we have a lot of things I want to get into today, but I wanted to start out by getting a little bit of background behind you. Obviously, coach at Walsh Jesuit High School for the women's soccer program. He is the coach at internationals for what level? I coach the regional level team. So it's the uh, 2007s and 2005 and 2004s. Perfect. And then also has some prior coaching experience at Bishop Fenwick High School and Archbishop Alter High School in the Dayton area. Lots of coaching experience. Great guy on the other end of the desk here. So let's start out talking about your playing career in your early days. You were a high school athlete at Revere High School just down the road. Talk a little bit about your experiences as a high school athlete and maybe a little bit about some things you may have learned as a coach from your coaches back in the day. Yeah, uh, so my playing career was very unceremonious. You know, I didn't have – I wasn't as good as my teammates. There's no question about it. You know, I uh, – I played at Revere for four years, but I never really amounted to much. Um, so I wish I was a better soccer player for sure. You know, I, I grew up playing the game, but I can't say that I really uh, achieved much as a player. But I knew that when my soccer playing days were done that I wanted to, uh, to coach. So I quickly jumped into that um, while I was in college, and that's how I got involved with Bishop Fenwick High School. Um, but some things that I learned from my coaches, you know, I had, uh, it's actually wasn't so much the coaches that, uh, that I had around me that I learned from, although I had some really good coaches growing up. I learned mostly from a couple key figures in my life, um, as far as like how to manage the emotions of, of playing a sport. So I was very fortunate that I had some, some really good people around me that kind of gave me the right morals and and taught me certain things that, you know, I carried through my playing days because, you know, soccer, playing team sports is not just, um, it's not just about the wins and losses. There's so much more, especially in the high school ranks that you get to, you get to touch on, you get to teach. So for me, it was more so um, the lessons that I learned were not necessarily the soccer lessons, but more so the life lessons, which is the biggest thing that I tried to, uh, I try to hit on now as a as a high school coach myself. And when you went to college, you went to the University of Miami in Ohio. Yep. Is that when you started considering coaching to be your future? Yeah. So, like I said, I I had a an <laughs> an unproductive uh, high school career. You know, I didn't. I always felt that I kind of sold myself short, and so I wanted to. In a lot of ways, I felt like I was kind of setting the record straight for myself, but also trying to help 
future athletes avoid the pitfalls that I fell into. Um, so it was my sophomore year of college that I decided that I was going to try to kickstart my coaching career. And it was my junior year of college where I got my first job as a JV assistant coach at uh, Bishop Fenwick High School. I would peruse the job postings on the Ohio South soccer website, seeing what was available. And I think I sent out probably like 20 emails to people seeing like if they would be interested in taking a completely rookie (laughs) kind of absolutely no experience kind of person to just kind of learn the ropes. And I would, you know, I was very honest with them. I would tell them I have no experience, but I just want to learn and I want to, I want to get better. And, uh, I was very fortunate that, uh, I think it was the very last email that I sent out and it was full of grammatical errors and it was, <laughs> it was pretty, uh, it was pretty poorly written email, but I just reached out to a school called Bishop Fenwick and I said, Hey, I know you guys are looking for a JV assistant. Everyone else has turned me down. I really am just looking for a shot here. Would you guys be at least willing to meet me? So a lot of gratitude to, um, the coach there at the time, his name is Tom McEwen. He took a chance on me, uh, at a very early age. I was, I was 18 when I got the job. I was 19 in my first season and uh, spent a good four years there. We did, uh, we did really well, had a great time learning, learned so much from Tom as far as like how to run a program. He gave me some opportunities to kind of, you know, he threw me into the fire, so to speak. And, you know, what I was looking for was, like I said, an opportunity to sk- kickstart my coaching career. And that certainly did that for me. So when you kickstarted your coaching career, per se, now that you are a head coach in today's day and age, what do you do to relate to new coaches on that level that are trying to get into the same position that you are? To relate to them? Um, or help them out in a sense. Yeah. So I always want to uh, give people opportunities that uh, for people who are like in my position who were just looking for a chance. And if, if, the pers- if it's a good person, then the coaching part of it really doesn't matter because eventually they'll find their way. And that's kind of where I started. I didn't know anything about, like, I knew that I always wanted to be a coach, like I said, and I, I knew the game pretty well. I just didn't know all the other stuff that came with coaching, which is the team management, the program administration, handling volunteers, um, you know, community outreach, dealing with the, the school administration. So for me, it was important once I was kind of established myself, it was important for me to find ways to give people opportunities and get people involved, even those who were kind of, you know, worried or, or um, scared of the opportunity. I always tried to promote them and give them an opportunity to see what, how rewarding it can be to help, you know, the future generations achieve their goals and, and to be a part of shaping their, you know, their early adulthood life. So a great example of that was when I was in my last year at Alter, we had room to hire two J or we had room to hire a single JV assistant coach. And, uh, but we had two applicants and both of them were very strong. And I remember talking to my athletic director at the time and I told her, you know, I'm not sure. I I really like both of them, but I don't think that we could hire both of them. And she asked me point blank, do you think this person is worth hiring? And I said, absolutely. And she said, well then make it happen. And, uh, you know, both of the assistants were were very young and they had zero experience actually coaching, but both of them said that they want to get into it. So we hired both of them. And uh, now the one that I was kind of on the fence about hiring simply because of, you know, space issues, you know, he's now a college coach um, at, a, at a D3 school down in Southwest Ohio. So, um, 
that was a really rewarding kind of thing for me was to was to you know give this young man an opportunity and see him flourish and you know again it's all it's all started it all started because it was I could see the goodness in his heart and I could see the fact that he was a he was a good person who just wanted to get involved and again if you start from that place where you're seeking good people as opposed to you're seeking good coaches you know the coaching stuff comes comes naturally to good people talk a little bit about your transition from being an assistant coach into your first head coaching opportunity so i was an assistant jv coach at fenwick for two years it was a just a massive learning opportunity for me i would try to involve myself every time i could at the varsity level you know by my second year with fenwick because i was already kind of a position coach working with the back line um, but it was only because I, you know, worked so hard to earn the trust of the head coach at the time that he would give me these additional responsibilities. Um, but I was still really young, so I could relate to the players in a way that some of the other coaches couldn't. Um, so it was, a, it was a really fun kind of atmosphere to be in. Again, I was learning as I went, but I also had this responsibility to uh, bring, you know, different ideas, different way of looking at things, particularly from the soccer perspective to, uh, to the head coach. So, um, you know, I did that for, I think I was a JV assistant for two or three years. And then, um, he asked me to join the varsity staff. So I was the, one of the assistants on the varsity side for, I think two years. And then I moved on to, um, become, become the head coach at Alter. And again, it was very much thanks to, uh, Tom's recommendation of me to, to Alter, um, you know, he, uh, when the position came up, you know, I told him I was kind of interested in it, but I was also really nervous about it. And he put in a good word for me at the school and got me an interview. And then I think the same day I interviewed for the job, I got the call saying that, uh, they wanted to hire me as the next head coach. So it was trial by fire, man. Like I didn't have really any head coaching experience whatsoever at, uh, I, I coached like small club teams. Right. So that was kind of a uh, an opportunity to kind of get a sense of what a head coach does, but club is so different from high school in the sense that you don't have nearly the amount of responsibilities as far as like the the school goes and grades and you know monitoring athletes and stuff like that. At least at the time, because I think the 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 team that I had when I moved from Al or Fenwick to Alter was like a U nine team, so they were right. very young, and I was a uh, I was still learning the ropes, so to speak. So, anyway, uh, it was uh, it was a, it was a difficult transition in the sense that I was kind of learning things, but you know the more, most important thing I did was I met with the the one of the assistant coaches whose name is Sean Humanansky. Um, so Sean was an assistant at Alter for like ten years, um, and when the pre when the coach left at Alter. I reached, well, I don't remember if he reached out to me or I reached out to him, but the point is we met and, um, you know, I asked him to stay on because I knew that he was a wealth of experience and knowledge that I could really use being a first time head coach. Definitely. And, uh, what Sean provided to me over the course of my 10 years at Alter was not just knowledge, like technical expertise, but it was friendship. It was camaraderie. It was, um, someone who would listen to me when I had to kind of you know, beat around an idea. And I'm forever grateful to Sean. I think, you know, he is, he's an incredible human being who has a, an enormous heart. And, um, 
you know, again, I couldn't be more blessed than to be surrounded with good people during my time at Altar. So to answer your question in a very indirect way, and I'm sorry, Logan, I'm, I'm terrible at this because I just <laughs> tend to ramble on about You're doing stuff. fantastic. That's what the people <laughs> want to hear. But, um, you know, I, I, one of the first things I recognized was the fact that I needed help. And so I tried to put together a team of people that could really help me out. And so between Sean, you know, as my assistant, Paul Manfrey, who runs a gym down in, uh, in Centerville, who just, who, who helped me with the conditioning side of things. And he was a fantastic friend and resource in that area. And then I had a series of other great coaches that, that really helped me along the way. You know, I think that's what, what helped me in the transition from assistant to head coach was just recognizing the task at hand and realizing that none of that would be something that I could accomplish, you know, on my own. Before we transition into your coaching career at Alter, question I wanted to pose to you is it's a big debate more recently, actually, I would say, that playing club is more beneficial for you right now than playing high school. As a coach on both ends of the spectrum, what is the benefit of continuing to play high school soccer in 2023 that you can or can't get at the club level? Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble, Logan. <laughs> um, you know, I think the benefit of high school, one of the things that I admire about high school is that it's as close as you'll get to like an environment as like a European soccer environment that you can get here in the States. Um, the community kind of support and playing under the lights and playing in front of, you know, potentially, you know, a thousand people, depending on the game, you're not going to get that at a club level. And, um, you know, the pressure, you watch, you know, the NCAA finals. Right. And uh, in those games, they have thousands of people packing the stands. And you just can't replicate that at the club level. So I don't think that neither, I don't, I wouldn't say that either one of them is better than the other. It just depends on the situation. I can understand why a player who plays at a high school where they have, you know, 16 kids try out for the team. Right. And those, you know, the, the level, the disparity between their ability and the ability of their teammates is so, you know, so vast that they recognize that that's not the best environment for them. I can totally understand that kind sure. of situation. But then there's other players who are on the other side of the spectrum who have uh, a team that's full of kind of high-level athletes and who do have the same goals as they do. So I wouldn't say that there's, again, I wouldn't say that one is better, better than the other. For I sure. think they should complement one another. If you're doing it right, they complement one another. I wouldn't tell a kid to play high school just for the sake of playing high school. Definitely. Just as I wouldn't tell a kid to not play high school just for the sake of playing club. I think you have to you have to have a good conversation with people that you trust and ask their opinion about what your what their best interest is as far as their development and as far as, as far as their career in the sport goes. And you know, take a good good look and see what the most, you know, what what's going to be most beneficial, but um, that all being said, you know, I have a, I have a soft spot for high school soccer because, you know, I've been involved with it for as long as I have. And I do think developmentally, it teaches you a lot of things that club, unfortunately just can't. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm also a, a club coach who's very passionate about, you know, not only the club I work for, but for the players that I work with. And, uh, I know that they're, they're learning as much as I'm learning from them, you know, they're learning from me and we have a great environment. So, you know, again, I think it's just everything in balance. That's really the, the key to everything. Transitioning over to high school soccer, Archbishop Alter was your first head coaching gig. 10 years at Alter, became a state power at the Division II level. What did you do as an incoming coach 
to start the process of making Alter a state power? <laughs> the first thing I did was I stood before foolishly, and I, and I mean this, foolishly, I stood before those parents and the players, and I told them, uh, we're going to win a state title. And mind you, this was a program that hadn't won a title ever. And I think the last time they got to a state final was like 10 years before I got hired. So they all kind of looked at me in the room like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and of course, I was young. Like I said, when I got the altar job, I think I was 22. Wow. So I was young, energetic, passionate, you know, ready to take on the world. And I learned really quickly how hard it is to actually get to that point. The first thing I did was eat a big, big slice of humble pie <laughs> in that room when I realized, like, I need to be a little bit more careful with what I say in front of people. But I was very, uh, you know, I was very lucky that I walked into a situation at Alter where they had really good players. Um, and again, I had Sean as a great resource. And I also had uh, two other coaches, Dave Bockrath and Kim Granis, who uh, were... Dave was a high school coach already. He was a head coach at a, a different school in the Dayton area. And he was interested because his daughter was coming into Alter. So he had reached out to me and asked if he could, um, if we could meet and talk about an opportunity for him and his assistant, who was Kim at the time, to come and help us out at Alter. You know, he did. We, we, we came together as a coaching team. We came together as a, as, as a team at Alter. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing is I just kind of gave them organization as a team. You know, I told them, I gave them a shape. I gave them kind of an objective, what they were trying to accomplish anytime they were on the field. Um, I think the most important thing is I kind of returned the power back to the players in the sense that I gave them this idea that uh, they're not going to get all the answers from me, that they have to, they're going to have to workshop a lot of these things by themselves because, you know, I think they recognized as much as I did the fact that I was new to this and, um, I really tapped into that energy that we had, that like new coach, new program, new vision energy. And I just said, you know, guys, it's, uh, I really, I really tried to push the passion piece. Like it's, it's a lot about passion. It's a lot about hard work. It's a lot about putting pride before everything, because at the time I was, like I said, I was really young and really didn't know much about the tactical side as much as obviously I do now. And, uh, so anyway, long story short, uh, we did, we did really well my first year. We got to the state semifinal, which is the farthest the team had gotten, you know, like I said, in something like 10 years. Right. And that was 100% due to the fact that we had just incredible soccer players and a community who was just surrounding the team and pushing them forward, which is very similar to the community we have now at Walsh. Getting a little bit further into your career, take me back to 2016. You finally reached that state championship point. What was that experience like for you getting that program to that point and ended up winning the game? It was the culmination of, what was it, six years of work. So I think in 2013, we lost again in the state semis, and we had like a, a powerhouse team, and we lost a heartbreaking state semifinal game. And we knew looking at the incoming class that we had that we were not going to be as good as, you know, the three years preceding. So we had to make kind of a, a tough choice about what the future was going to look like. And so we went all in on this class, this, 20, this class of 2017. Um, and we said, regardless of how good the players are or whether they deserve to be on varsity or not, we're going to go in all on, on their friendship. And their, their, um, this group was like, a, I think it was like eight seniors, well, who were going to be seniors. So it was, this class was about eight players. 
and we said, we know that they're friends. We know that they're, um, you know, we know that they're passionate about the program, about the sport. So if we can kind of tap into that and kind of move them through uh, the years, um, that when they are seniors, there's a potential there to make something happen. So that's exactly how things went. In 2014, we were not very good. 2015, <laughs> we were not very good. And then 2016, not only did these did that group kind of take the reins and, and just completely uh, own the program, but then we had an influx of uh, some, we had an, a, a, an incoming class that year. So that f- the freshman class of 2016, um, who are just incredible people who I, you know, I still keep in touch with today. And, uh, we have some really great, we've shared some really great memories together. That group mixed with the senior class just, and then, you know, the players in between. So we just had an, a fantastic team, but we had this leadership group because of those seniors who had kind of gone through the trials and tribulations of working together over the, the course of those three years. Um, so they really pushed the team forward. And, uh, you know, I think 2016 was a huge surprise to everyone. I don't, I don't think that anyone in, like, in the high school soccer community really expected us to win as much as we did, considering how bad we were, the, like I said, the two years before that. So when we got to 2016, it was a, uh, when we got to the final, um, it was more of just taking it all in and just recognizing the moment for what it was. It was, you know, years and years of work, sacrifice, um, you know, heartbreak, uh, passion, everything kind of put into one 80 minute soccer game at uh, the old crew field. And I remember just soaking in every single minute of that uh, of that game, whether it was the warm-ups and seeing the players on the jumbotron and like catching the glimpses of themselves smiling because they see that they're on the <laughs> jumbotron and they're trying to be serious and they're trying to be focused because that's what you know the moment requires of them. But at the same time, they can't help but giggle because you know they're there. They right. made it. You know what I mean? So those are those moments where you're just like, you know, you just get it's it takes your breath away in a sense of like you're just so so proud of of number one, the players, but obviously number two, just the sense of like our community made it. Like we did this, we, we came through together. And uh, the game itself was, was okay. Um, you know, we ended up winning three to zero. So when I say it was okay, it, was, it wasn't like the nail biting kind right. of final that some finals tend to be. But the game, so the game itself was fun. Like uh, we had a great time you know, coming out of that, it was just this sense of like, I can't believe that we actually did this. So it was cool. And now being a coach that has coached a state championship game in Mothbray Stadium and in Lower.com Stadium, what would you say is your favorite thing about each Columbus crew field that you've had the opportunity to coach in? Well, Lower.com is pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's one of the coolest stadiums I think I've been to. I think, you know, the crew, the old crew stadium has that feeling of nostalgia. Right. And uh, since it's been around since the 90s. So, you know, I think it's good that, you know, Columbus got a new soccer stadium because I think that one needed uh, some serious kind of help. The older one was, was, like I said, it was outdoor. You know, it was that huge kind of like, obviously it's outdoors, but it, it has like the, the east ends are kind of open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, each, I should say, each corner of the stadium is open. So it's, it feels bigger, right? right? Um, and it feels like you're playing in like a park with bleachers, like just this huge park with a ton yeah. of bleachers. 
Um, but lower.com, man, it feels like you're in, you're in a bowl. It feels like you're kind of sitting underneath the ground and the stands are so close to the field. Very close. Which is different from, from old Mop Frey Stadium. I mean, both are cool. There's no question lower.com is cooler just because it's newer, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but both are, both are really nice. You know, we were very lucky in 2019 when we went there with Alter, um, the U.S. team had just played Mexico the day before. That's right. So there was stuff. There was still U.S. soccer mm-hmm. stuff all around the field. Um, so there were still like pamphlets and like confetti, and uh, they still had the U.S. soccer like signage all over the in the locker rooms and and uh, in the player entrances and stuff. So that was really cool because um, you know that's the that's the pinnacle of of soccer is the national team, right? and the pinnacle of high school soccer is a state final. So to be at a state final while seeing all the U.S. soccer stuff still, you know, there and knowing that players had just kind of been there not more than, like, 12 hours ago, you know, that was a pretty cool That was a pretty cool experience. Before we get into your career at Walsh Jesuit so far, another question I wanted to pose to you is your final year at Alter was the COVID year, if I'm correct? It was, yeah. What yeah. was it like being a head coach during the COVID experience? It was, it was very hard. It was very hard. Um, so in 2019, we won our second state title. And like I said, there was, a, uh, there was that, that class of 2020 who I had grown really close to. I'd worked with them for two years in club. Um, well, actually, it was only a year at club, and then I continued working with them when COVID hit. But we were very close. Um, so I was prepared to kind of move on in 2019 mentally, but then COVID hit and uh, I knew that I couldn't just leave the program because I couldn't imagine how hard it would be for a new a first time head coach to, to make their way through um, what would be as difficult of a time as coaching through a pandemic. And I wanted the, the returning players to have a sense of normalcy. So, um, you know, I made the commitment to to stay for an, for the 2020 season because you know, and I still was very attached to to the school. So that's Definitely. you know, it was it wasn't a hard decision to make by any means. Um, but I just remember in the in the like the months after, like when COVID hit, everyone was freaking out, right? And I remember I was on the practice field when they started announcing school closings, and I was surrounded by you know high school players, and they were all freaking out. And I tried to, like, instill a sense of calm and normalcy and say, like, guys, this will be okay. And, like, you know, everything will be all right. You don't have to worry about it. Knowing that, you know, I was terrified myself because, you know, I had a a young daughter at the time who uh, was just starting school. That happened in March. And then by May and June, they were starting to talk about ways that players, that high school athletes could get back outside and start doing stuff together as a team. And I remember at first it was, like, in clusters. So you had to, you can only do, like, eight players at a time. And then they kind of made it bigger. So I worked with our strength and conditioning coach to figure out ways that we could do this in a safe and uh, in responsible way. So we did kind of like individual workouts with just the players going to a park, separating by a good like 15 feet and running through some conditioning exercises. And then we got word, I think in July, that um, we were able to start doing like group training sessions, but we had to... We had to temperature chat, test, and we had to. They had to report their symptoms, and we had to keep track of all that stuff and submit it to the school. 
So there was just a ton of administrative work and we had to wear masks outside, which, you know, looking back, um, it was just built out of fear. You know, it's like, we, we don't want to get anyone hurt. And my position had always been if, if wearing a mask, number one, if it protects anyone, you know, even if it's a 1% protection against someone else getting hurt, you know, it was, it's a, it's a small, small price to pay in order to save someone, you know, especially, you know, you're working with athletes who see their grandparents frequently. And at the time there was no vaccine, there was no treatment, there's no therapy. So, you know, my opinion on it was always, you know, let's, let's enforce this as strict as we can. Number one, because we could, we could potentially save people. But number two, because at the time it was still very unknown as to whether we'd even have a season at all. So the most important thing was if we show that we're being responsible, if we show that we're listening to what the governor wants us to do, then maybe he'll, will be a story, a success story where they'll say, okay, well, if this program is doing it right, there's got to be more programs that are doing it right. Therefore, you know, they'll let us have a season. So they did. Thankfully, it was really difficult. Um, in the sense that, you know, there was very few fans in the stands. I think they only allowed two parents. So it was very, it was, it was a very different kind of season than any other one that I've experienced. However, at the same time, like, you can only look back and say, like, how fortunate we were that we were still able to have a soccer season. And, you know, that year, we actually didn't have any COVID cases at Alter wow. on the team. Number one, I'm thankful that no one got hurt, no one got sick. But number two, I'm thankful that we had a season and we gave those players a sense of normalcy during what is what was totally not a normal time. And last coaching experience before we get into Walsh Jesuit, you were a coach with the Dayton Dutch Lions in 2021, which played in the OVPL. Talk a little bit about the difference of coaching with that type of team as to where you're coaching now and maybe what you gained from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so with the Dayton Dutch Lions, it was kind of a, it was a cool opportunity. I had a, uh, a director of coaching named Scooby Daniels at uh, Ohio Galaxies, who's one of the coolest people I've ever met. And uh, Scooby let me know about this. This uh, they were. He told me that the Dayton Dutch Lions were looking for a coach, and he put me in touch with um, a guy by the name of Sid Van Droinen, who is currently at Wright State, I think, on the men's side. And uh, he was responsible for like both the men's and the women's side at, at the Dayton Dutch Lions. And he told me that they were putting together this summer league for returning uh, college athletes. And uh, it was going to be a competitive league. They played in uh, Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio. So I jumped on it because I knew it was an opportunity to work with some you know, really special players. And so we put together a pretty good team of, of college athletes who played both at you know D1, D2, D3 programs, NAIA, and then we also had some college club players. And that was, that was an interesting experience. We had just moved back to Akron in the spring of 2021, but I had already committed to doing this team, which played in the summer of 2021. Gotcha. So I would leave work, you know, on Tuesday at like 4 p.m., and I would book it down to Dayton, and that's like a three-hour drive. That's a hike. <laughs> yeah. So I would drive down to Dayton, uh, jump straight on the training field, and then we would do it back-to-back, so I would coach on at seven o'clock at night until you know eight thirty nine o'clock no yeah seven to nine seven to eight thirty something like that and then i would stay over either at a hotel or with a friend who lived in the area 
and then I'd coach again the next day, and then I'd make it back. And then on the weekends, depending on where the games were, I'd either be back in Dayton, Columbus. We played games in Kentucky. So uh, it was a busy week, summer, and that was also my first summer at Walsh. So, mm -hmm. you know, I had so much going on that summer. that was It was pretty intense, but it was a really cool experience. I really enjoyed it. One of the things I'll never forget was that was when the cicadas were coming back out. <laughs> so we our practice field was just full of cicadas, and so... Not that that has anything to do with soccer, but just one of those <laughs> things that you think about when you look back on, on you know, memories. Well, you mentioned it. The big one was your transition to where you currently are, Walsh Jesuit High School. A little backstory, as I mentioned, Walsh Jesuit Women's Soccer, a program that has 10 state championships, I could be wrong, was the most state championships won by a program, men or women, a team that had not lost a single game in five years from a span of 2012 to 2016. One head coach ever in program history. Opportunity opens up. What is the process like when you see that this opportunity is in front of you? So going back to 2021 winter, so it was, I think, January, and my wife and I were talking about moving back home because of uh, my father-in-law was battling a, a pretty difficult disease, and we wanted to be as close to family as we could. At that time, my parents live in Pittsburgh, um, my wife's parents live in Ridgefield. So we thought it was an opportune time to, to kind of come home. So we were in the midst of talking about it, and suddenly this position opens up. And at that time, I'd already started talking to my job about if there's a, if there's a potential to transfer to Cleveland, and then this opportunity opens up. And so I, you know, I reach out to the athletic director, and I just told him, you know, I'm potentially making this move. I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but if it does happen, I'd be very interested in mm -hmm. in um, in taking over at Walsh. So I I applied to the job, and uh, the AD Mark Hosman, who's the sweetest dude in the world, uh, he was very patient and uh, very supportive during the process. And I interviewed for the job. And I, I met with a panel of people because you know, as you rightly pointed out the program was incredibly successful mm -hmm. and they have a huge kind of alumni following and uh, the impact that that program has had on the school you know it's not lost on anyone so they had they they rightly so they took it very seriously they wanted to make sure they found the right person for the for the job um, so I met with a panel of of people from Walsh and uh, all in obviously in leadership positions at the school and it was a really cool experience having that discussion with them because they obviously, they really cared about, about the program. They really cared about the kids. And um, so I interviewed. Uh, I was told, I think maybe a week or two later, that, you know, they, that if things work out, that they would like to offer me the position. And I was very, I was very thankful, very, uh, very excited. Um, but I knew I had to get, you know, the other stuff figured out um, before I could... You know, high school soccer is not a full-time job, although right. it feels like it because of the amount of work you do. You know, it's not a it's not a full-time paid position. So as much as I wanted to commit to it, I knew that there were other things that were more important for the family at the time than, mm -hmm. you know, me continuing. But I knew that if we were going to move back home, I wanted to continue to do something that I really liked to do, which was coach high school. I think if there's one thing that's a, a driving theme <laughs> in everything I've said, it's just how lucky I've been. But I was lucky that my uh, my boss at the time, with my job, uh, was an incredible man. Is an incredible man, and he offered. You know, he accepted the transfer, um, and so we transferred to Akron, got everything situated, and that's when I told Mark Hosman that 
it would uh, that I think that things would work out. And so we kind of planned the announcement of everything based on that. And then uh, and then we started with virtual meetings because I was still kind of transitioning from Dayton to Akron. Um, so we started with some virtual meetings with the team, um, did an in-person meeting twice, one with just the players and then once with the parents and the players in the spring. And then we hit it running literally with conditioning in, in June. So you talked about virtual meetings. You, you accept your job. What was the reaction from your players the first time you spoke to them, knowing that they had just had this huge shock, a head coaching change out of nowhere, you're coming from Dayton. They're not sure. They might not know who you are at the time. Right. What yeah. is the reaction from your players the first time you spoke to them? I think if you ask, if you were to ask them, I think they would give you a different account. To me, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how they they took to it. I. It seemed to me that they were excited. Um, it, se- it seemed to me that they were nervous, and it seemed to me that they were uh, suspicious. Like you know, you had the whole spectrum of reactions. You had people who who didn't want the change, obviously, who were very much, um, they were very happy with the way things were. Then you had on the other side, you had people who, um, you know, like I said, they were, they were kind of looking, they were a little bit excited about, you know, a a new direction. So you had the whole kind of gamut of, of reactions. Um, but the virtual meetings, you know, I tried as much as I could to pry information out of the players (laughs) to get a sense of like, okay, well, what did you guys do in the past that made you so successful? You know, where are the areas, what are the untouchables? Like, what are the things that the program has has kind of established as mm-hmm. things that they have to keep? And then what are the things that um, we have some wiggle room to kind of make mm-hmm. some changes? And uh, so that was, a f- that was like pulling teeth at the beginning because they just really, um, you know, like I said, especially the varsity kids, you know, they, they, uh, they had a hard time um, coming, coming to terms with the kind of the change and because right. it all happened so fast for them too. Um, but then over time as you know, the vert and you know, you went to school during COVID too. Right. So I think everyone at that point was sick of zoom meetings and teams meetings and whatnot. But once we got together in, in the summer and we actually got to be together and work together and they got to see what the vision was for the program and, you know, the things that we'd be doing and I could get them we could talk more as human beings and and get them more excited about the season to come. You know, I think very quickly barriers broke down and we were able to come together as a group. Um, And over the, over the course of a few months, you know, as we got closer to the season, it felt like we had been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was, that was a really, you don't think of that at the time, right? Because it's such a natural kind of progression of relationship building that you don't like, you don't stop and kind of assess like, okay, where am I, where am I with players right now? Where am I with this player? Right. You don't do that. You just feel it. And so it certainly felt at the time, like we were kind of taking natural steps towards building relationships. And now you look back at it and you know, it's uh, it was, it was pretty cool to be able to, to click as quickly as we did. Absolutely. So you come into your new position, you meet with the team. <laughs> now it's time to build your staff. You're coming to an area where the program has no, occupied staff you have to start from scratch take me through your thought process as to what you were looking for i know you alluded to you were more looking for the person as to the coach yeah i guess take me through how did you find the people that you found on your staff yeah so the first person i found was my brother uh in-law shane and i remember i was talking to him when because they moved back in 2020 i think it was at the in this winter of 2020 they moved home from 
from Chicago. They moved to to back to um, Bath, and I remember talking to him, and I told him, "Hey, if I if I if I apply to this job, and if I eventually get the job, would you be interested in in being an assistant coach with me?" And I had always been bugging him for years about like, "Hey, if we ever live close together, you should you should consider working." Uh, or doing coaching because he was a, a fantastic soccer player throughout his life and um you know he's a f- you know shane he's a ton right. of fun to be around so i knew that we would do well together so i asked him if he'd be interested in it if i were to apply for it and he said absolutely so that was easy you know he was with me from the very beginning doing meetings and um going through equipment and all sorts of stuff so Shane and I were on board pretty quickly. Um, and then it was about finding a JV head coach. And, uh, you know, when you talk about high school soccer, the most important staff member is, of course, the first one, it's the varsity coach, because, you know, that person is in charge of, you know, leading the program. But the second most important on the varsity or on the staff is the JV coach, because that person uh, develops the talent that eventually will make their way to the varsity side. So, it was important for me to find someone that I knew had a, a background in coaching, but who also was passionate about the program to, to be the JV head coach. And uh, so I met with Joel Pence um, as he was trekking through uh, Ohio on his way to a soccer tournament. I think it was in Indy or something like that. And so we met somewhere north of Dayton um, for a coffee, even though he doesn't drink coffee. <laughs> um, and we just started talking about soccer and and uh, how much you know we started throwing around ideas of the way that we liked our teams to to play and kind of our main principles of team management and whatnot. And it became pretty evident that this was a person that not only I could trust, but someone who would challenge me in ways that you know I needed to be challenged intellectually, technically. Uh, he would. You know, he had a, a wealth of experience that would help me, especially with the Walsh stuff. You know, he would help me. Kind of, he would be a great source to guide me through some of those things. So I it took a little bit of convincing because I had to tell him, you know, that this wasn't just like a JV job and done. You know, I fully wanted him to be kind of like a, a JV head coach, but also an assistant on the varsity side in many ways. So... Um, you know, I, I think it was important for me to impress upon him that this was not just a one and done deal. This was, you know, when I, when I hire people for my staff, I really wanted to make, I want, I wanted to make, I want it to be like, it's truly a family of people who, right. who talk and, uh, hang out together even when the season is done. Cause that's what makes this so much fun is that you have, you know, basically a family between the players, the coaches and the program, mm-hmm. the community around it. So um, talked to Joel. He agreed. Um, so I was on my way. I had three coaches on staff, including myself. Now I had to figure out um, who could help me out with the goalkeeping side because I'm um, I have a little bit of experience <laughs> in the goalkeeping stuff just through like coaching courses. Right. But if you put me in in between the two sticks, I would be uh, a stick. I would be a stick. Yeah, <laughs> good one. uh so yeah so i would be terrible um and i would be terrible at teaching it and so i reached out to a couple people to see if they had any connections i reached out to a guy by the name of denny who 
does a lot of goalkeeping coaching mm-hmm. around the area. And I asked if it was just a random email in the dark again saying, hey, look, I'm desperate to find someone that would be willing to help me out here. What do you think? And he said, I know just the right person. So he put me in touch with Jennifer Farwell. And uh, man, did I strike gold because Jennifer was a fantastic hire. She is uh, not just a great goalkeeper coach, but she's also an incredible human being. But most importantly, she's an awesome role model for our girls. Mm -hmm. So I had now basically a functioning staff um, not exactly where I wanted to get it to, but it was as close to uh, what I could get it to in order to just basically, you know, satisfy the needs. Right. And the last thing I needed to do was bring on board a uh, a uh, someone who could help me manage the social media stuff because, number one, it's important to connect with uh, young people. Um, and number two, I am not the person to do that. I'm no longer young. <laughs> and... <laughs> I am not on Debatable. social media. Yeah, I'm not on social media whatsoever. I, I, I don't have a Twitter or an Instagram or anything like that. Um, so I would be terrible at, at managing that. So um, Marion Drake, who works at Walsh, put me in touch with you, Logan. I say it every time. But I, you, you have been nothing but an incredible uh, resource for us in so many different ways beyond just the social media stuff. And um, so I had a functioning staff at that point. I had a I, I had a varsity assistant. I had Jennifer working with the goalkeepers. I had Joel um, helping out with the JV team. And then I had you helping promote all the awesome things that the team was doing on and off the field while also, you know, just being there to help with anything else that, you know, went beyond the scope of of the, the job. And, uh, and then moving into year two, I wanted to expand, make the family just a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to... Uh, Caitlin Coleman, who was close to joining us in 2021, but she had this little nuisance of a wedding to plan. (laughs) So she couldn't join us in 2021, but thankfully uh, she agreed to join us in 2022. And so Caitlin is a uh, varsity assistant. And again, just a fantastic role model for our players. Um, And then I also was very fortunate to uh, have Nate Maxwell apply uh, for the JV assistant job, which one of the things that I really wanted to do going into 22 was get uh, Joel some help because it's hard running a team by yourself. But it's also really hard um, when you're a dad and you have a full-time job and uh, high school being so demanding. So we had, to, we had to get Joel some help, and we were kind of running up against the wire trying to find out someone, trying to find someone to help him. And Nate happened to uh, apply to the job. And I think the 15 minutes after Nate applied, I reached out to him and said, <laughs> hey, let's meet. And uh, so I just saw a lot of myself in Nate, you know, someone who was looking for an opportunity to get involved. Um, Nate had a, a, a better playing experience than I did. He played in college. Obviously, I didn't. Um, so I knew that he was already kind of had a leg up on me in that sense. But more importantly, again, his qualities as a human being shine through every conversation that we had leading up to us hiring him and we had a lot of people apply to the job but we just uh for one reason or another you know we just didn't feel like it was the right person to bring into the family and uh you know nate certainly felt like it was a it was a natural kind of thing to do so here we are now i would agree nate's a good dude hang out with him a lot now it was cool to have somebody on staff that's relatively close to my age yeah 
So moving into more of the regular season in your first year, you ended up with a record of 12 and three, and that includes the state final. Fantastic first year. What do you credit that to? Do you credit that to the already existing leadership that you might have had in your seniors? Because I know you've talked to me off the air about the camaraderie within the senior group that yeah. was already existent. Mm -hmm. Schedule comes out great, make it all the way to the state final, which was completely unexpected in the outside world. In our little Walsh world, obviously, we, we as a staff knew that our team was capable of that, but maybe the outside world did not. Make it there, even though we lose, fantastic first start. What, what do you credit that to? What you just said. Um, but it, it goes back to like the beginning. It goes back to my first year at Alter, too, where it was a sense of kind of enthusiasm, um, us against the world mentality, where I just kind of, um, you know, we, there was a diff, I was a different person coming into my first year at Walsh than my first year at Alter. So I had a, like I said before, I gave them a sense of organization at Alter, but I was really relying on them to kind of, you know, punch our ticket at, at, at each game, kind of let their individuality and, and the talent kind of shine through. I think with Walsh um, in the first year, we had a we had a better, the game model was better developed. Um, so we gave them a sense of structure and organization that was, and in a very good way, it was different from the way that Walsh had been playing in the past. And why I say that's a good thing is because if I tried to replicate, you know, what someone else had done in the past, I would have failed miserably. The right. team would have failed miserably because that's just not, it's not a recipe for success. And I think that goes for, you know, just coaching in general, you know, and I learned that early on. You know, I remember when I was at Alter, one of the first things I tried to do when this was at the height of the Tiki Taka Barcelona teams where they would just connect these little dinky passes around teams and pull them out of position. And it just looked beautiful to, it was just aesthetically beautiful mm -hmm. to watch. And I wanted to replicate that at the high school level so bad. So I would show these, you know, my alter teams uh, clips of Barcelona and say, hey, we should play like this. And they'd ask me why. And I would say, I have no idea why. <laughs> I just want you guys to play like this. And um, over the course of time, you realize, and especially I, it took me a good three or four years, but I realized like I was, I was, I was pretending to be someone I wasn't. I wasn't Pep Guardiola, you know. I wasn't... Um, this in, this incredible soccer coach who could revolutionize the game. I was who I was at the time, and it didn't make sense for our players to try to play in a way that they didn't resonate with. It didn't. Right. It, they couldn't connect with that. So, but what I could do was try to take bits and pieces and steal from different ideas from all the different coaches that I looked up to, but make them relatable to a high school soccer player and see if we could kind of you know, create an amalgamation of different styles and different ideas. And, uh, but more importantly, insert myself in all of that. Because if I don't see myself in the way that the team plays, then there's no reason. I just can't coach it. Right. Um, and I think that's true for any coach. You know, I think if you look at like Phil Jackson, he says the same thing. For him, you know, uh, he always felt that his teams, like the triangle offense, you know, he felt that he, that was the way that he saw the game of basketball. And that was the only way that he could teach it. So over time, you develop your own way of seeing the game and you develop your own way of kind of teaching it to the point where it becomes difficult, um, you know, seeing it any, in, an, in a different way. So I came to Walsh with this idea of how I wanted the game to play, which is, you know, a transplant of the way that the team at Alter was playing. And then within that, 
you know, you have to allow for, you have to give a, an allowance to the players to be their individual selves in the games and whatnot. So I think in that first year, what we saw was like the the perfect kind of apex of a team that was re-energized and felt like they had something to prove with a coaching staff who was motivated and ready to to help them along the way. And when you have that kind of magic in a bottle, and then you had this, you know, I can't say it enough, the community around Walsh is just fantastic. So when you have this kind of, you catch this lightning in a bottle where, you know, the team is motivated, the coaches are motivated, and the community is supporting, supporting the players and the coaches every single step of the way, you know, you, you can't help but succeed. Absolutely. Moving through your season, could you pinpoint one point where you knew that you had a strong team? whether it was a certain game, a certain practice, just one moment where you walked away and knew this team has it. In my first in the first year? Yes. I I can't say that I would I would look at any one moment and say, "Okay, this team has got it." You know, internally we have our own goals mm-hmm. as a coaching staff, as you know. Uh and then externally the goals. I think any high school program should have the goal of winning a state title. It's like and it doesn't matter at what level, because I think if you if you pretend that achieving something less is okay, then um, you're selling the player short. Because the dream shouldn't be, you know, let's get to October. The dream should be let's get to November and right. get to that final. And I think if you communicate anything different to the players, then you know what happens after that. So, um, you know, our goal at Walsh. It's always to get to a state final, and it's always to win. Um, but internally, you know, as a coaching staff, we have other goals that we set for ourselves that we that we're going to use to kind of measure our success. And uh, so, in that first year, our goal wasn't necessarily to win a state title. Um, our goal was to really just, you know, see where the season would take us, but do the little things along the way that we knew would eventually that could potentially get us to that game. Um, and that was just focusing a lot on tactics, a lot on organization, a lot on, you know, kind of hammering in the game model, but also building in a ton of team bonding opportunities, team film sessions, um, and then giving the leadership council room to breathe and, and give them opportunities to, to take the reins and lead. And uh, so to your first question, or the question you asked before, 100%, the leadership group that we had, you know, you think back to like Kennedy and Molly Gray and some of those incredible leaders that we had, Colleen, Maggie, you know, it was just a group of seniors who knew their roles and played them exactly like the way, the way they needed to be played. One of the, the captains, Colleen, you know, she slowly saw her minutes shrink as other players on the teams kind of grew into theirs. Right. And if there was an award I could name after a player, it would be, you know, the Colleen Reagan Award of Leadership because instead of kind of sulking or instead of kind of withdrawing into herself and, you know, becoming a problem, she recognized how, you know, she, she recognized the gravity of that moment and she was able to, she actually elevated herself. She elevated her performances. She elevated her, her team spirit. She elevated her you know, her interpersonal communication with the players that were playing in front of her. So that's the kind of stuff that you you can try to teach, but again, it goes back to the very beginning, which is good people first, good players, good coaches second. 
and you know again i think someday down the road maybe my lasting legacy when the time comes you know maybe what i'll uh, what i'll do is i'll name an award after colleen because there's there's no question that without her leading by example that we wouldn't be getting to that first that last game of the season absolutely leadership definitely a key piece to your first season at walsh jesuit end of the season like you mentioned gets to the state final very unexpectedly by the public eye unfortunately lose the game but coming off of a state final what did you tell your players after the state final and then what were you thinking heading into year two that you could carry over after an experience like that one of the things I remember the most is I was walking up to Allie Drake, one of the seniors at the time, and I remember you know, her goal was to get to that. Uh, every player's goal is to get to the staff right. final, but I know that she was like so hyper-focused on it, and she got there, and she really wanted to win, and unfortunately, we got our butts kicked. And uh, that was a really, really good Mountain Notre Dame team that we Very came good. up against. And uh, so we lose, and we lose, we lose pretty bad. And um, I remember she was bawling her eyes out, and I just went up to her, and I said, why are you crying? Like, take a look at this place. Right. Like, just just breathe this moment in. Like, you have, you know, a ton of people in the stands. You're playing at Crew Stadium. You made it to the la- very last game of your high school career, which was a state final. Like, you should be just full of pride. Like, I know the result sucks, but just take this moment in because this is one of those moments you'll never get back in your life. So try to spend as much of this in a, in a happy state versus a state of regret. And um, so that's really what I tried to tell the team was, you know, the result wasn't what it, what we wanted it to be, but just remember all the incredible moments that we had together that led up to this moment. And that was the same thing with Alter, with the, the, the state finals that we got to there. It was always, you know, you look back on those seasons and kind of like the milestone is the state final, but that's just how you get to the memory. That's just how you access the memory mm-hmm. is like the 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 final or you know that that game but then when you think of that then you start thinking about the faces and the memories and all the awesome stuff that happened in between even the hard stuff and that's to me that's you know so much more valuable than you know the gold medal because the gold medal to me it's it's not nearly as like i said it's not nearly as important as as like just those little things that you remember throughout the season that you think to yourself like how cool and how fortunate, you know, we were to be a part of that. Of course. Heading into year two, started off a little bit slow. Goes through, the, goes through the summer, great summer with the team. Now you're a little bit more established in your role with your squad. Heading into the second season, obviously, like I mentioned, slow start with a loss to rival Hoven, 2-4. to four. Very hyped up game, didn't go our way. Yep. Tied Strongsville 2-2 two to two, and then lost to Centerville 4-1. to one. Right off the bat, what were you thinking and what did you try to do to help improve team morale? Because for these girls on this team, that's not something that they've ever experienced to start like that. Yeah. We look, so we look at the season in quarters and we say like in quarter one of the season, cause there's 16 games. So I'm not good at math, but I know that you can, you divide that out pretty nicely. That makes two of us. <laughs> uh, so we look at the season in quarters and we say, okay, in quarter one, where do we expect to be? both in terms of results, but also in terms of like developmental opportunities for players. At what point do we promote this player on the JV team into the varsity team? Like when will she be ready after how many minutes does she need to get that kind of thing in quarter one of the second season of 2022, we certainly expected to be coming out of that, hopefully at 
with a two and two record. We thought that we had some wins in there, but we knew that there were going to be some really difficult ones as well. So we were hoping to come out with 500 and we didn't, we were, we, we were struggling. And, uh, there was some concern about the team morale and their ability to kind of push through some of that early disappointment. But again, man, I, I just can't say it enough. We have such incredible people at Walsh, those players, you know, they could have easily have just kind of put their heads down and started going into like straying from the game plan, straying from the things that had made us successful. And they could have tried to take on the team by themselves. But instead of doing that, they returned to the collective and they said, let's, let's figure this out together and let's, let's keep, po let's stay positive. Let's really have that growth mindset that we commit ourselves to and, and let's try to push through these bad results. And, uh, you know, by game five, we were rolling and, uh, I think after that we didn't lose a game i think we won every game after yeah i don't know i can't remember exactly but anyway the point is that we did really well after after that first quarter of the season and um yeah i mean we were hitting our stride which which made things uh much more enjoyable for the for the rest of the year definitely would you say that you made any key tactical switches either in your formation or the players on the field that impacted going forward what worked to spark these results no um i think like during that time we made some changes to the shape um and again this goes this is a total testament to the staff uh that we have there is that we challenged each other and you know we gave each other different ideas and said well what if we do this or what if we move this player here and so we kind of did some experimenting when we thought the results weren't kind of going our way but at the same time you know, in my mind, I always knew that uh, this was a, that every storm will pass. And in that case, you know, I knew that if we got past those games that eventually we would find our winning ways again. And uh, so we, we experimented a little bit, um, but then we went back to our, uh, our, you know, our identity and, and that really eventually that, that came through. Get into the playoffs. Good run. You lose in the regional final to Strongsville. Season two ends. Now we are in the offseason as we speak. Looking into year three for you. What are you looking to accomplish because upcoming season and what do you expect the season to be like? Not even in a soccer sense, in a more of I'm this is my third year with this program now. I have a sense of how to how it works, what I want to do, what doesn't work. What would you say you expect going forward into year three? Um we have a lot of youth. Uh, that needs to that's going to have to step up based on the fact that we graduate quite a bit so you know what we should expect is that these players will step into these roles and you know we have full faith that they will um, so and we gave them opportunities throughout the year to kind of to get a taste of what it would be like to be relied upon in key moments so you know them being able to step into those roles you know it's always it's always nerve-wracking um, but we're going to try to help them through that anxiety and, and prepare them as best as we can, um, knowing full well that they have all the tools necessary to, to, to kind of help the team do well. Um, so in year three, what do I expect to accomplish? You know, I hope that we just continue to be the best version of ourselves as we can every time we step onto the field, while knowing that the soccer piece of this is, is only part of what makes, you know, playing high school sports as as awesome as it as it is absolutely transitioning a little bit away from walsh before we close our podcast 
you as a high school coach, we are a college radio station up here. What do you tell your players or how do you assist your players in the college recruiting process to help them get to that next level? College is, is you know, playing high school soccer and playing club soccer, like I said earlier, they need to be go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And when there's good communication between the high school coach and the club coach, then the player ultimately uh, is in a better position to achieve their goals when it comes to getting recruited in college. Um, when you've, you know, I've been doing this for 14 years now, so I've had the opportunity to kind of build relationships with people, you know, in high school, club, college, and it makes things, you know, it makes things easier because I can, number one, I can be candid with players about, you know, their potential to play on certain teams, uh, at the collegiate level. But number two, um, you know, it helps me get a sense of what the college program is, is looking for and the players that they're recruiting. So the most important thing that a, that a player can do is start the process early in the sense of just start getting a sense of, of, the, of the demands of the, of the program that they're looking to go play for in college and then being realistic about their, their ability to compete at that level and then ask themselves, just like they would with an academic kind of process of what are the reach, what are the safety, and what are the schools, like the sweet spot, the Goldilocks schools, and then kind of build out your, your list um, that way. And then, and this is like the fundamental piece, is don't take anything personally. You know, it's, it's almost like buying a car, right? Like you're not gonna get offended if the guy's not, if you know, the salesperson's not gonna sell you the car for right. the price that you're asking for. You know, you have to be okay with leaving the, the deal on the table and moving on, um, even if it's the car you really want, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult process. But ultimately, you know, that college coach, their ability to recruit well um, will have a transparent uh, result on, their, on, on the results that they get on the field. So they need to recruit well. They need to bring in the players that are, number one, going to help them win, but number two, they're going to help them do the things that uh, that they want to see happen based on the way they want their teams to play. So you know they're literally quite literally their jobs are on the line. So they have to be careful with how they spend their money. Um, so again, you you just can't take it personally. You gotta you gotta find the school that you you think will be a good fit for yourself. Um, if you take the soccer aspect out of it, would you be okay going to that school? And then if you throw the soccer aspect in it, would you be able to manage both? Mm -hmm. And would you enjoy this, you know, the four years that you're there? Um, but start early, you know, hit the hit the ID camps, talk to the coaches. Uh, once you're in your, I think it's a junior in, in high school, you're allowed to start talking to college coaches. So, you know, start reaching out to them, invite them to watch you play. Um, and be in good communication with your coaches who are always going to be you know, as if you're doing the right things, they're going to be your allies in the process and they're going to help you. Again, number one, they'll be honest with you about, you know, what they think of your ability to compete at that level. But number two, again, they're going to help you. They're going to put in a good word for you and, and talk about the things that, you know, like your training ethic, your personality, um, your ability to, um, uh, to manage emotions and uh, adversity and, and tough situations that things that, you know, a scout from a college wouldn't necessarily be able to to get just by watching a player play. And then over the course of that process, you know, you're going to get some looks. You might get a lot. You might get a few. And then it's just a constant evaluation. And, again, not taking any of it personally. 
Before we close out, I have three final questions for you. The first one is a little bit less of a question and a little bit less pressing. What do you credit to your family with your successes in coaching and life? Talk a little bit about your family and what that means to you to have them by your side. Oh man, they're everything. They're, they're absolutely everything to me. Um, there's no question about it. So my, I was, I was born, uh, to an Argentine family. Um, I'm the only American, I'm the only person born outside of the country in my entire family. Um, so soccer's in my DNA. Um, and even though my parents didn't play soccer, my mom was a semi-pro field hockey player growing up in Argentina. And my dad, uh, was a very ambitious kind of, um, incredibly smart person. So I got the competitiveness from my mom and I got the, the ambition from my dad and, uh, they, you know, from an early age, they kind of pushed me to, to be the best I could. And when they realized that I was failing, you know, they continued to push until the point where they, you know, they recognized early that I had to learn some of these lessons by myself. Um, so failure, recognizing that moment of failure, uh, is an important part of, of being a parent. You know, you have to let your kids learn what it means to not only fail, but how to pick themselves back up without, you know, being handheld. And, and so my parents did a, a good fair share of both and they were a great team kind of raising me. And, uh, I was incredibly lucky <laughs> that I met my, uh, wife when I was in high school at Revere. Uh, I was a junior in, in high school and, uh, man, I'm still learning from her to this day. You know, I, I tell her all the time that she taught me how to talk to adults. She <laughs> taught me how to, how to, how to, uh, to kind of, um, interact with, with people because before that I was, you know, I was immature. I was, I was very quiet. I was very introverted. Um, but she's the, quite the opposite. I mean, she's a chameleon and, uh, she has a, a special way about her of how to like draw people in and really claim their attention. And so I stole as much of that from her as I possibly could. Um, and so she really helped me. And, you know, even my parents tell her that too, you know, she was mm -hmm. huge in, in my, you know, in my maturation process, as far as like, you know, my, uh, my mental facilities, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I have my two beautiful daughters who teach me every day, the importance of patience, <laughs> but more importantly, they teach me about, you know, the beauty of life and, uh, you know, God calls on us to be, uh, to be as childlike as possible. Right. And, uh, when I, when I see my children, you know, I think that's the most important thing that I, that I try to take away from, you know, my reflections is there's a, there's a beauty in, in, uh, in life that sometimes we lose. But when we look, when, when I look at my, my daughters and I see the way that they interact with each other and I see that the way that they kind of experience life in such a different way than, than I do currently, you know, it makes me appreciate every, every second of this because, you know, ultimately that's why I do what I do is because I like helping and I like, you know, I like, uh, being someone that people can rely on when, when they're feeling down or when they feel like they need someone to, to help them kind of give them direction. And in many ways it's, it's like being a father. And, um, so my family's everything. And, and, uh, as much as I'm learning, as much as I try to teach others, you know, I go home and I have a whole new source of inspiration and, and life lessons that I can then not only teach my children, but I can learn from them as well. That's awesome. That's great to hear. An amazing family indeed. I've had the pleasure of getting to <laughs> hang out with them multiple times and yep. 
I really appreciate everything that you guys do for me personally. Absolutely. Second question for you, out of the three, if you could pinpoint one piece of advice that anybody, any coach or somebody you've worked with at any point has given you that you've carried with you throughout your life and your coaching career, what would it be? Uh, I would say, you know, Tom at Fenwick, who's now at Lakota East, he gave me a quote that I don't know if he made it up or if he stole it from someone, doesn't matter. He told me people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That has been everything to me because it's the truth. No one really cares to learn from anyone unless they know that that person really cares about them and uh, that they're teaching them because they want to see them be better, not for selfish reasons, but for you know altruistic reasons. They actually care about the other person that they're that they're helping. And then um, I was recommended a book by someone who was in a leadership position at my full-time job, and the book is called Radical Candor. And it's this idea that being honest with people is a radical idea uh, now in nowadays society and in our culture. And it's important for us to, um, to, uh, to be honest and upfront with the people that we care about, because if we care personally, then we'll challenge them directly. And, uh, and it will create good dis conversations that ultimately help people, especially when you're in a leadership position, telling them, you know, what they need to hear is the best thing that you can do for them. And so that's been one of my guiding mantras. You know, whether my mom knew it or not, <laughs> you know, growing <laughs> up, she was very radically candid with me about <laughs> uh, my decisions in life and kind of... Uh, the things that uh, she wanted to see out of me. And so, you know, I kind of always felt that I was raised in a radically candid environment. But now this book kind of put words to, uh, it kind of named or labeled um, my mom's parenting style, which is very much the way that I try to, I try to be with the players that I, I lead as much as I can as well as I try to be honest with them. So absolutely. And final question for you. You talked about how you like to inspire new coaches. You'd like to give them opportunities to be successful and great in the coaching world. What would you say is your main piece of advice to a new coach? Or just what would you say your advice to a young person growing into any profession should think about when looking into positions, whether it's soccer-related or not? Mm -hmm. I think uh, I'll, I'll say three things. Number one is humility. Uh, you have to be humble enough to accept when you don't know the right answer. A great example of that is, you know, I'm now in my 14th year of coaching in general. Um, and I had a player one time ask me in the middle of a game, uh, what do I do when this happens? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, I remember Nate started laughing like really hard because it, it, I, I think it caught him off guard. But the, the truth is that sometimes saying, I don't know, is the best answer possible. And uh, so being humble enough to, to say that I'm not the source of all the answers and that sometimes you got to figure some stuff out on by yourself, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, anti-leadership, especially if, when we're talking about men, it's anti-masculine to say, I don't know. But um, you have to be able to say, like, I'm going to find this answer for you, mm -hmm. or maybe you need to find this answer for yourself. Um, but we're not all, you know, we're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. So, you know, you have to be honest with yourself and honest with the people that you're helping and tell them, you know, when, when you do and when you don't know 
the answer to certain things. And maybe sometimes you do know the answer, but you're just withholding it because you want that player to kind of push through it themselves. Right. So humility and knowing, uh, knowing when to, when to ask for help, which leads to the second thing, which is, uh, surrounding yourself with good people. Um, you learn by trial and error sometimes, uh, who are the people that are there to help you and who are the people that are there to get something from you. Sometimes it's a mix of both. Most of the times it's a mix of both. Um, when the person is more on the latter side where they're actually trying to get something from you. So you won't learn what it really takes to hit rock bottom until you hit there, until you get there. And then you learn, okay, what are, you have to then reflect and say, well, what did I learn from that experience? So there are certain people in your life that are, that are purely transactional. They come into your life because they want something out of you and then they'll kind of, you know, move on. But then there are people who just truly are either as passionate about something as you are or they're passionate about you and they want to buy into you uh, and they want to see you do well. And again, I can't say it enough. I've been so lucky that I've kind of run into people who I've either been able to sell on, you know, some of the things that I'm passionate about. But number two, who had the same kind of passions and interests that I did. And we were able to kind of work together to to accomplish common goals that, you know, ultimately made us both very, very proud and happy people. So, um, again, honesty and humility is the first thing. The second thing is make sure that you find good people to journey with because the journey is not worth any of it unless you have the right people around you. And finally, the third thing is just passion. Like if you love something, don't be ashamed of, don't be ashamed of, of pursuing it. You know, I don't care if it's soccer or if it's like if you just have a collection of pots and pans, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like if you're if you truly adore pots and pans, then don't apologize for it. Collect as many of those things as you can. You know what I mean? And and be proud of it and uh, be the best pots and pans collector that you can possibly be, because ultimately, as silly as it sounds, you might inspire the next person to do just that. And, uh, you know, with something like soccer, you know, it's such a fun sport. It's, there's no other sport like it. Um, and if you have an opportunity to kind of give people reasons to show up to a soccer field instead of showing up to something else that might get them in trouble, mm -hmm. right? Or if you give them a reason to believe in themselves and to believe that something that they're, they can accomplish on the soccer field will then translate to something that they can do in the classroom or, you know, with, you know, have a difficult conversation with someone that they love because they were able to have that conversation with their coach or their captain, you know, that's, that's where the passion comes through. And that's where, you know, because of the passion, you put yourself in your, in an uncomfortable zone and you learn things about yourself and you learn things about what you're actually capable of and, and how much, how many punches you're able to take. So humility, surrounding yourself with good people and just the passion to, to get to where you want to get to. So I think those are the three main things that I would tell any future aspiring leader or coach. It's fantastic advice. Javier, thank you so much for your time today. Any final thoughts for the people? You're the man, Logan. I appreciate it. Well, guys, this has been another edition of Sports Power Talk Overtime. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on all major streaming platforms and also tune into our weekly sports talk show, Sports Power Talk only on 88.1 WZIP from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Sunday. You won't want to miss it. Thanks again to Javier for joining us and wishing him a successful season ahead with Walsh Jesuit, and we'll see you guys next time.